God speaks it to us. I want him to work in us. Uh, let's ask him to be at work as we hear his word. Great God and Heavenly Father, thanks uh, that you do uh, speak the Bible to us. Uh, thank you that you uh, work by your Spirit. Uh, please do be at work in us, uh, that we'd give attention to you, that we'd trust you, the speaker, uh, that we'd uh, be equipped uh, to live in the trials and difficulties of uh, this time that we live in. In the Lord Jesus, amen. Imagine sitting down to dinner at one of those great big long tables. There are lots of people there, and some of them are your dear friends. Others you've just met, and the table is full. It's a feast. Uh, The cook is at the table, uh, and you're all about to eat when someone leans in and tells you that a problem. There's a problem with the food. Some of it will kill you. Big problem. Uh, Some of the others have already started to eat. They look fine. They say the food is marvelous. They're loading up their plates with a sample of everything. They're chewing, they're swallowing, they're savoring. Uh, And they're telling you, this is wonderful food, it's nutritious, Uh, they they know they like it, it is a pleasure to eat. What do you do? I guess it depends on who told you that some of the food would kill you. Um, Are they reliable? Uh, And are they telling you which foods kill you? Or just telling you, oh, there's some of it in there. Can you tell the difference? Uh, And if you can, because they're helping you know what's different, then what are you going to do about your friends and everyone else who's at the table? It can be a bit like that in conversations around dinner tables, or during lunch breaks, or hanging out after school, or bumping into Christian friends uh, who you haven't seen for ages online. Some of the ideas and suggestions they feed you, some of the ideas and suggestions they feed you, some of them will feed your faith. Some of them will make you thrive. But others are destructive. How can we live when the ideas and suggestions on the conversation menu range from nutritious and good for you to destructive and deadly? If you're checking out and trying to work out what the Christian, what faith in Jesus is, who's going to tell you what's the true good faith in Jesus? How are you going to know that what you're hearing is true? Last week we read uh, the part uh, of this letter where Peter insists the things he's taught weren't made up myths. Uh, This is what he's been saying. Uh, He saw and heard things, and he spoke what he saw and heard. He's an eyewitness. Uh, He's an eyewitness, and he points to the Old Testament prophetic word and says that that word has been fulfilled. The reliable word of God spoke centuries earlier. That reliable word is more certain because in our experience, we can see where it has already been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. And the prophetic words and the apostles' teaching together shine forward 
They shine forward on us where we are and beyond to when Jesus returns. They shine on the dark time we live in and beyond to where the glorious return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Last week, we re- last week we read that part of the letter where Peter insists that the things he taught weren't made up myths. We can put our practical trust in the words God speaks in the Old Testament and through in the New Testament. That's where we start. That's where we find out what faith in Jesus is. But what about all those ideas and suggestions we live in? Chapter 2 shines a light on our experience. Peter says there were false teachers, sorry, sorry, there were false prophets, and there are false teachers. Not just out there, verse 1, we can expect false guides among us. See, if you flick back in your Old Testament, uh, uh, you'll, you'll see false prophets. Flick back far enough and you'll hear Moses, the defining prophet of the Old Testament. You hear, you'll hear him warn his hearers to expect false prophets. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, he warns about prophets who'll give signs or wonders. He'll say what will happen before it happens, but will also say... Let us go after other gods, let us serve them. Moses says, don't listen to them. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Moses says the the false prophet must be wiped out, killed, because they are teaching rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt and redeemed you, and bought you out of the house of slavery. So he's speaking to them, and he's saying, as bought-out people, among other bought-out people, those false prophets were saying, don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love these gods too. Life will be better with these gods pick up your Bible and flick through the Old Testament and you'll see those prophets, not just true prophets, false ones. It's not just flicking through the pages. It's living life. Be part of church and listen to teachers and you won't just hear true teachers. See, look at how Peter says it in verse 1. False But false prophets arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Peter's speaking to a community of men, women, and children who have been redeemed by Jesus. They've been bought by Jesus. False teachers speak as bought people among bought people, and they're denying the one who bought them. And their hearers are going through the test and trial of who they will listen to and whom they will love and serve. Unlike Moses, Peter doesn't say kill the false teachers, but we know what not to do with the false teachers. Just listen to them. We also know that Peter says God will destroy them. 
As we read the rest of this, this letter, uh, we'll get a fuller feel for what uh, Peter's first hearers were facing when he wrote to them, what sort of false teachers. There are hints at it here. But Peter's also talking more generally about false teachers. We should expect to see them. Among us now or in years to come, among the authors on our shelves, the people on our playlists, the words friends share and Facebook feeds, expect false words, but don't follow them. Let's look briefly, or let's look, at, look at, uh, briefly at what Peter says about these false teachers. The first thing is false teachers just call themselves teachers, or maybe they just get on and teach. Uh, they bring in destructive heresies secretly. They're wolves who hide their wolfiness. They look like sheep. If they admit any difference between what they say and what you've heard before, they might describe it as, well, a different stream or another flavor. Or maybe they insist that they've come to correct you and what you used to think. But their teaching does damage. Peter says it's destructive. It's not neutral. It's not just different ideas. It's different ideas that are destructive. Now, it's fair to say that they don't necessarily uh, look like they're damaging, they're being damaged by the things they believe. Any more than those people sitting around having dinner look like they're being poisoned. They think they're better off because they've thought it or heard it. They think they're better off because they're living it. They think that what, what could be better for you than for you to think it too and live it too. So they share. But their teaching does damage. Now Peter might have in mind a, a bit of the idea that they'll be living against the grain of reality because they're, they're into falsehood. But the word destructive repeats at the end of verse 1 as destruction. And again at the end of, near the end of verse 3, destruction. The damage Peter definitely has in mind in terms of this destructive teaching is eternal. They leave themselves without a savior. They leave their listeners without a savior. Their teaching does that sort of eternal damage because it denies the master who bought them. They refuse the life-changing implications of God's rescue. See, those Old Testament prophets who stood among the people who God bought out of Egypt in order that they might be his, those false prophets, they said, don't worship and serve the God who bought you like he's the only God. Your life will be richer if you worship these other gods too. They denied God's right to be the one master. They denied the goodness of God's rule. Essentially, they said God's not a good master. False teachers doing the same in verse 1. They deny the master who bought them. They speak as bought people to other bought people, among bought people, and they tell them that they'd be better off living as if they are unowned. As if they have no master. As if they should just work out who else they want to follow. Or just do whatever they want to do. But by his 
death, the Lord Jesus brought us out from under slavery to sin and death and judgment. We're not our own because we were bought. He bought us in order to bring us into the freedom of being his servants. Serving him is true freedom because he is the best of masters. Serving him is what we're for. But false teachers say it's not true. Possibly with words about being authentic and true to yourself or saying that freedom from judgment means, well, you could just get on and sin because you're forgiven anyway or one way or the other, with or without explanation, they live in what verse 2 calls sensuality. Just a word which means living as if anything goes, no limits. They don't hold back from sin, they just push into it. Their life and teaching denies the one who is theoretically the master, but not functionally. They don't follow their shepherd. They throw themselves into what their master calls sin. They're not interested in honoring and obeying Jesus. Verse 10, they despise his authority. These false teachers refuse the life-changing implications of God's rescue. They reject Jesus' rule. They live as if anything goes. Now, one consequence of that is the opinion that people have about the gospel message. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, when God's people live as he calls them to live, we make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. But false teachers and their followers make the way of truth unattractive. Sure, there will be people in the wider community who are just as committed to living as if anything goes, They'll welcome with open arms a Christianity that says you can live as if anything goes. But verse 2, others blaspheme the way of truth. Though I'm not sure if it's just others. It may be the welcomers blaspheme the way of truth as well. It seems to me that the slander that's directed at the way of truth is when people speak as if lives like that are the fruit of being rescued. As if God saved people to live while doing whatever they want. As if that's the fruit of knowing and being rescued by Jesus. They slander the way of truth when they say God is the sort of God whose people live like that. Peter says people who teach and live like that, well, they're often motivated by what they get. Verse 3, greed. Peter wrote when uh, uh, troubling philosophy teachers were, um, the, the, were the Netflix of the day. Um, they, they'd show up, they'd show off their debating skills, um, and people would pay the subscription. Um, their aim wasn't to teach truth. It was to win the arguments and to make the money that came with being impressive teachers. And verse 3, Peter's saying, in their greed, false teachers will exploit you with false words. Some of them are probably the ones who accuse Peter of telling made-up myths. But Peter's saying it's the false teachers who make up stories. And they do it to make money out of it. 
That's their goal. Now, an ox should eat, and a worker deserves his wages, but the New Testament is not naive to the possibility of pastors being in it for the money. And God insists that it mustn't be so. One sniff's test for false teaching is that the people are teaching because of greed. One sniff test for false teachers is this motive. But paid pastors aren't the only ones uh, who can be dishonest with motives. Uh, Some people teach because they like to look clever, or because they need to be appreciated, or they love the recognition, or they enjoy being influencers. Paid or unpaid, false teachers are in it for what they gain. They'll argue their corner to get what they want. They don't care about truth. They're not caring for you. They're not speaking out of love. They're just doing their thing and they're happy to use you to get what they want. False teachers are interested in what they gain, not you and not truth. They say they're teaching truth, but their teaching does eternal damage because they reject Jesus' rule. They live as if anything goes, and they lead many in the same rejection, and they make the way of truth unattractive. Peter shows them to us. I don't think he explicitly says what to do with seeing them until almost the end of the letter. Chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. He doesn't say it until right at the end, but you kind of know why he's showing you what false teachers are like. He's saying expect to see them. Expect to see people who are willing to teach, but whose words and lives refuse the life-changing implications of God's rescue. You'll see the truth about them in their lives, in the lives of those who follow them. They don't pursue godliness. They don't live the service of love, which is Christ's purpose. They do pursue their own gain. They don't prize truth. They don't love you. You need to know God will judge them. Verse 1, he will destroy them swiftly, suddenly. Don't follow them. Don't join with them in that destruction. The end of verse 3, Peter says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. If they think there's no condemnation coming because it hasn't come on them yet, they are wrong. If they think God's warning about destruction is sleeping and will never wake, they couldn't be more wrong. Verses 4 to 6, Peter goes back to Genesis for evidence. He looks back to when God condemned rebels for judgment. God condemned rebels to judgment. In verse 4, he mentions sinful angels. The story is in Genesis 6. Now, Peter's point, angels are more mighty than humans, and they didn't get away with rebellion. God didn't let it slide. Centuries ago, he cast them into hell where they are still in chains of gloomy darkness waiting for the day when judgment finally falls. 
God didn't let mighty angels sin slide. There is no way false teachers or their followers will get away with sin. Now, that's all the evidence we need, really, isn't it? Except it isn't. Peter gives us two more Genesis examples, the flood and the cities. Uh, God brought the flood on the people of the ancient world because of their ungodliness. They lived as if anything goes. Uh, Their plans and desires were evil continually, and they did them. And God wiped the ungodly ancients off the face of the earth with a mighty flood. And a few generations later, God destroyed the ungodly cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because they deserved it. Those cities, uh, they're an example of what's going to happen to all the ungodly, Peter says, verse 6. So Peter reminds us of three not made up stories. God didn't spare, if God didn't spare sinful angels, and if God didn't spare the ungodly ancients, and if God did give a glimpse of his judgment that will fall on the ungodly, then verse 9. You can be sure the Lord Jesus Christ knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Those false teachers who are alive and influencing hundreds of people who love them for what they teach, uh, the ones who made a killing, fooling people uh, out of their money, and they're enjoying a comfortable re- retirement up the coast, uh, the ones who died peacefully in their sleep, they look like all is well. It looks like all ends well for them. But all is not well, and it will not end well. Lord Jesus knows how to keep the righteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Possibly Peter has in mind Jesus leaving them as deniers instead of bringing them to repentance. Remember Peter himself was a denier of Jesus, brought to repentance. These ones don't repent. He he certainly is saying that those who have gone to the grave are in some sense being punished like those ancient angels, but still waiting for the final verdict. It's a partial punishment in the grave held for the day when they'll be raised to shame and everlasting contempt. When we say this, it brings clarity, doesn't it? It brings clarity to to how to love false teachers, how to love those who are under their influence, how to love Christians who are drifting towards teaching, which is taking them away from treating Jesus as rescuer and ruler. Well, you like don't eat what they're eating, but you also got looking around and thinking about others to warn them. Because destruction will come. If God did those things that he said he would do, he will do that thing that he has said he will do. The false teachers who seem to be getting away with everything aren't getting away with anything. The Lord Jesus knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. But that's not all he knows. I've mentioned all the evidence we need uh, to know that following false teachers would be a bad idea. But it isn't all the evidence we need. 
God didn't just condemn sinful angels, wipe out the ungodly ancient world, and give a glimpse of the coming judgment when he judged those ungodly cities. God preserved Noah and he rescued Lot. See, I skipped these bits of the evidence. Verse 5. Uh, Peter describes Noah as a herald of righteousness. Uh, back in Genesis 6, uh, Gen- it says that he was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And then shows us God keep Noah and his family safe in a flood that destroyed everyone else. Before God destroyed the ancient cities, he rescued righteous Lot. Now, if you know the story, righteous might not have been the word that jumped to your mind when you thought of Lot. He makes some very obviously poor choices. Some sinful suggestions. But when you go back and have a look, perhaps righteous makes sense. Lot is spared after Abraham has prayed to God to spare the city if there are 50 righteous people, or 20, or 10, but there aren't. And God brings out Lot. Far from perfect. He messes up big time. But Peter focuses on, Peter focuses on his resistance to wrongdoing. One of those poor choices in terms of how he tries. But he takes that resistance to wrongdoing as a window into what it was like for Lot earlier that day. And the day before, and the day before, and the days before. Verse 7, Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now, if you know about, if you know more about Lot, the, the, the temptation is to look down on him for his obviously poor choices and his sinful suggestions. Peter's saying he lived with the pain that came from those poor choices. We see him battling and failing to work out how to live among the lawless. But at least he battled. At least he saw it and he thought, no. He grieved over the lives he lived among. Lot's not righteous, sorry, Lot is righteous, not perfect. And God rescued him when his condemnation fell on the ungodly. God preserved Noah through the flood. He rescued Lot from his coming judgment. And if God did that, then verse 9, then the Lord knows how to rescue the, un- the godly from trials. It's hard to live in this time. It's a trial. The time we're in. But look, Noah kept trusting God when almost no one at all in all the world believed the truth. Lot kept trusting God when he lived among a people whose lies screamed you'd be better off living as if anything goes. And God rescued them through those trials. Peter speaks about uh, the Lord knowing how to rescue the godly from trials. I think here he, he is including the particular trial of living in the presence of false teachers. It's a trial like the one that Moses told the Israelites they would face. 
Remember that bit of Deuteronomy 13 when, when false prophets come saying, let us go after other gods and let us serve them. The Lord your God is testing you. When false teachers call us to leave God's reliable word, when they invite us to lean in to what they say instead of what God says in his Bible, when they refuse the life-changing implications of God's rescue, when they reject Jesus' rule and live as if anything goes, take care. Don't go with them. The Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. So keep coming back. Keep coming back to the words that God speaks in the Old and New Testaments. Make sure that what you're hearing is what they are saying, he's saying through them. I preach to you from a bit of the Bible that you can look at as I preach because I want to make it easy for you to hear what I say and go, well, is it what this passage is saying? And I want to set you up so that whatever, when you hear things in other places, you can get your Bible out and go, well, is that thing I heard something that is what the Bible is saying? Keep assessing everything I say and that other sojourners say, and that you hear elsewhere, and that you see on your screens, keep assessing it to see if it fits with what God says. That's the assumed implication, isn't it? It's the assumed implication that comes uh, explicit near the end of the letter. But look again at verse 9. Just finishing briefly with this. Look again at verse 9. The Lord, he's talking about, again, Lord right through Peter, the Lord Jesus. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, knows how to rescue the godly from trials. This verse is about how you see Jesus in the midst of your struggle to stay faithful. He knows. He knows how to rescue the godly from trials. This is a verse is about how you see Jesus in the confusion of choosing who to follow, of working out who to listen to, he knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He's not waiting at the end to see how it works out for you. He's here to help. He's here to keep. He's here by his Spirit who speaks the Bible to us. He'll keep us right when truth and falsehood mix in what we're hearing, in our conversations, on our strains. The Old Testament are prophetic words, the words of the, of the apostles, which the Spirit speaks to us. They are a light shining in the darkness of a world corrupted by sin. They are a light when our own, our own hearts have not entirely escaped the corruption of sinful desire. They're the light that shows us false teaching is false and points us back to our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered for us, who is raised, who is helping, and who will return. He's the master who bought us. 
To serve him is true freedom. He knows how to bring us safely home. How do we live when at the dinner table or on work after school there are ideas and suggestions on the conversation menu that range from nutritious and good for you to eternally dangerous? Well, coming back to the Bible to be reminded and corrected, to see Jesus more clearly, to lean in and trust the glorious Son who suffered to bring forgiveness who is raised to rule, who is able to bring his people safely through trials and will return to bring us safely home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have not left us to be surprised uh, with the confusion of alternative ideas that pull in opposite directions. Thank you for the warning of your word that there are ideas and thoughts that people will teach, and people will teach claiming to trust Jesus, but which lead away from the one who bought us. Father, please do make us uh, careful and diligent and the things that we hear, uh, to keep coming back to your scriptures. Thank you. Thank you that you don't leave us to work it out, but that we see your Son as the one who knows how to rescue his people from trials. Father, please, in the difficulties and distractions of these days. Please keep us looking to your Son to guard and protect us, to bring us through trials, and to bring us home. And Father, please, as we live such lives, may we bring not blasphemy against the word of truth, but rather may people speak well of it, Father, may we speak it for the salvation of many. In the Lord Jesus, amen.